0: Welcome to Booked where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden.
1: And I'm Rob Olson. The book that we're going to be talking about tonight is We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. We're taking it back in the way you know, the way back machine to when was this published? Like in the early sixties? I think it was nineteen sixty-two, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh this is not a fresh, recently released book, which we usually do. This is, I guess it would be qualified as a throwback, but we've been trying that like uh um the best the best of an author type of thing we did that with um Kurt Vonnegut when we read Sirens of Titan i think this would qualify in that category too we took what has been kind of spoken of as as the best of Shirley Jackson and um read that book so here here's a little bit about Shirley Jackson and Livius is going to tell you about the book Shirley Jackson was born in San Francisco in 1916 she first received wide critical acclaim for her short story The Lottery which was published in 1949. Her novels, which include The Sundial, The Bird's Nest, hangzeman Is that a typo? *Hangzeman*? That's gotta be a typo. Hangsman? Uh, hang uh, Hangsman? No, I think that's right. Anyway, The Road Through the Wall and The Haunting of Hill House, in addition to We Have Always Lived in the Castle, are characterized by her use of realistic settings for tales that often involve elements of horror and the occult. Raising Demons and Life Among the Savages are her two works of nonfiction. She died in 1965. Uh, Come Along With Me is a collection of stories, lectures, and part of the novel she was working on when she died in 1965.
0: Hangs a Man is the right title for the book.
1: Hangs um, a Man. I guess that makes mm-hmm. sense.
0: The, this was the last novel that she wrote. We mm-hmm. Have Always Lived in the Castle. So mm-hmm. I believe it was 1962. In addition, we will be doing a mini, I don't know how much we're going to be talking about it. We did both read The Lottery because we had not read it previously. So we're going to tag that on to the end of, uh, to the end of this review. Here is the synopsis for We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Maricat Blackwood lives on the family estate with her sister Constance and her uncle Julian. Not long ago, there were seven Blackwoods until a fatal dose of arsenic found its way into the sugar bowl one terrible night. Acquitted of the murders, Constance has returned home where Maricat protects her from the curiosity and hostility of the villagers. Their days pass in happy isolation until cousin Charles appears. Only Maricat can see the danger and she must act swiftly to keep Constance from his grasp.
1: doing a little math while you were uh reading that and uh she died at the age of like 49
0: oh that's unfortunate
1: 1916 she was born 65 she died oh wow that's uh that's that is probably way earlier than she expected that's that's fucked up
0: i would have to agree um, um the, synopsis. All, yeah. the synopsis that's right the synopsis for this um I don't know, man. I didn't read the synopsis for this before I read the book, which shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. I don't know that Rob did either. Um I don't know. The synopsis feels like really weak. I all right. Well, that's
1: interesting because I thought it was actually pretty pretty accurate. Um and I thought I mean, obviously it's accurate. It's not it's not misleading in any way. Mm-hmm. Um are you just saying that it's not it's not selling the story enough or yeah i like i uh, uh
0: i feel like this would be hmm, i feel like if i picked up whatever the newest daniel steel book is this is what i would expect to to read in a synopsis yeah. and i feel like there's something there's some things going on with this book i feel like there's something a little more to it than what's in the synopsis and i guess we'll we'll kind of get into that and see if we can figure that out
1: well uh honestly, now that you now that you mentioned it, it made me think about this a little more, it tells the story that we don't read in the book. Because like almost the entire synopsis is telling you what happened before like where the book picks up. And one mm-hmm. of the things that's very conspicuous about the book is that it tells you what's happening now with almost no reference to what came before. So it I guess in that respect, it doesn't do a good job of representing the actual story because it's telling you what the book kind of intentionally leaves out. So that's kind of interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. So, uh, the synopsis, as you may have figured out, we told us a lot of what's, uh, what's <laughs> happening as Rob just mentioned. Yeah. We, uh, we start out with seeing Marikat, who is, I don't know, man, how old do you think she is?
1: I made a point to look because, uh, I thought it was a lot younger than it's actually stated at the beginning of the book that she's 18.
0: Yeah. See, that was weird. Cause I thought the same thing and I didn't go back to look cause it really seems like she's very, um, you know, 12, right? Maybe 12. Yeah,
1: I was thinking like, yeah, pre-adolescent.
0: Mm-hmm. So she is old enough to, um, to go to town and run the errands, which is how the book kicks off Is she's, uh, made her way into town and she has a list of things she does every week when she goes to town, um, and we start to see the anxiety that she has because of how people um, treat her or don't treat her or, or whatever the case is. So very early on in the book, you're you're clued in the, to the fact that the townspeople don't really like the Blackwoods.
1: Yeah. And it, it early on represents a very obvious disconnect from reality uh, with the character of Mercat because like um, they're... Uh, her anxiety is is obviously very real, and it's just based on the way that she thinks what she's thinking about when she's interacting with the townspeople, or even just like, um, thinking about how she will have to go walk past them on her path or something like that. Um, uh, it, it's very real, but at the same time, she like gamifies the process, like uh, she turns walking home into a board game, stuff that are very like is very childlike and whimsical in a way, but also like it's obvious that like because of the stress of the town not liking them. It, it's almost like a coping mechanism for her to get through what would be very stressful or, or, or I guess even scary for her. But early on, it, it demonstrates that like way, the way that Marquette sees things is obviously not in step with the way that, you know, maybe the townspeople would see things like she's, she's got her own kind of take on the world.
0: She does, and um an interesting one at that she's a very entertaining character, um but yeah, pretty quickly she encounters a a guy in town, and you, the story kind of starts to reveal itself, you know he's talking about, oh, I heard that you guys might be moving, and she's like, "Nope, we're not moving anywhere, and he's like, "But really, you should move, you know that kind of thing, you know that um uh, bullying, I guess, in a way um of yeah. Marquette, so The townspeople clearly not on her side. There are a few people that are a little sympathetic. The lady at the diner kind of tells this guy, hey, back off. He doesn't listen. Yeah, that goes on. Um, But then we're introduced to um, Constance Blackwood, who is her older sister. I believe she was 28. um, Exactly correct. And she is the the showrunner at the Blackwood. um, I don't know if mansion is the right word, but they live in a very big house on a pretty big parcel of land. And they're fairly well off. So Constance is the older sister who, as we mentioned in the um, synopsis, was accused of murdering the rest of her family, so her parents, her aunt uh, and uh and a uh, little brother um, by poisoning him with arsenic, she was acquitted of the murders, and now she's uh, uh unlike uh, Maricat, who's just hesitant to go into into the village. Constance has not left the property um, since she's been returned from. Um, jail or wherever they were keeping her during her trial so she runs the the house they also have the um uh, uh uncle julian who as a result of uh the same poisoning um is just not been the same he's uh he's disabled and uh physically um and and mentally too most of the time
1: yeah so um when when the book starts, once uh, Maricat gets home, I would say a decent percentage of the beginning of the book is dedicated to just their routine and learning how life runs in the Blackwood, I guess I would call it an estate. Um, because it seems kind of idyllic in a way. It seems like they found a way to keep the evil out and they, they've, they've struck a certain balance of calm and happiness uh, in their in their day to day life, things are are very routine. Um, we were introduced to other little quirks of Marikat, like she explains how um, she protects. Uh, well, uh, there's the physical definition of the, the land, which is they have a fence that is you know kind of fenced in their entire property that used to be open for people to kind of use as a shortcut that they you know they fenced off, and and now Maricat has gone to the lengths of burying. Um, Like, I don't know what to say, but like burying like significant items uh, in the ground or like nailing them to a tree as a way to like bolster the protection of the land, which uh, again is why she reads as such a young character, even though she's supposed to be eighteen. This is something that like I would imagine a nine-year-old would feel confident with, not necessarily someone that's twice that twice that age.
0: For sure. I mean, recurring throughout the book is her desire to live on the moon, which she has made into, uh, you know, an Eden of sorts that her and her sister and her cat Jonas um, and Uncle Julian could move to. And there would always be warm and, you know, uh, Jonas would always have, you know, mice to chase or, or whatever it is like she repeatedly throughout the book mentions this desire to go live this utopian existence on the moon. Um, which is endearing, um, although very, very repetitive um, through the course of the book. And so yeah, she never
1: s- once says anything about the moon landing being a hoax. Oh, it's it, it, it was written before the moon landing. It was before
0: mind. it was before the alleged moon landing. My bad. Come on, I threw an alleged and moon landing. I do not <laughs> love that. <laughs> oh, it's good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a slice of life is uh, what you could call a a good portion of this book until cousin Charles shows up. Now, I mean, you saw the whole thing coming with cousin Charles, right? Like the second he set foot in the door,
1: he was trouble from,
0: from like, he was trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He's trying to get some money. And again, I have to remind myself at times when I go back and read something that's older and I'll I'll put this in the older category at, you know, whatever, 55 years or, or whatever it's been since this was written. I was like, oh, this seems so predictable and so whatever. But I don't know at what point, you know, this type of story originated. So I had to remind myself. It's like when I read um, uh, Carmilla. I don't remember if we talked about this on the podcast. I read Carmilla, which is... Yeah, the one that came out before Dracula, and yeah. I keep reminding myself that no, this isn't tropey. This started the tropes. It's the like trope, this was, yeah. yeah, this is you know, <laughs> like, and I, I kind of felt like there might have been a little bit of that going on here too, but I'm not sure. Charles shows up and essentially tries to um, very quickly uh, insinuate himself in the family and and help make decisions and uh, essentially uh, get, get to the money is what he wants because the blackwood sisters have a lot of money and it is all in a safe locked safely away.
1: Yeah. And, and so him arriving emphasizes a little bit of that disconnect from reality as well, because it is, it is very obvious throughout that they don't care about material things very much. Like they're, they, they know they've got money to go to the grocery store and pick up, you know, their, their groceries that they don't grow in their, um, uh, gardens and stuff like that. Uh, but they just don't really fit well in to, to normal society. And so like things that his, the, this cousin Charles would find to be very valuable because in a conventional, like modern sense, they would be, they don't really care about. And so the more he inserts his, like uh materialistic influence on the house the stronger the 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 contrast becomes of like how these women are just happy living the life the thing that's valuable to them is each other and the fact that they get to spend time together and and, and not much else so it's an interesting contrast um and it to me the effect that it had on me was i felt so much stronger in favor of Maricat and Constance because they had a life that was kind of untangled from like the complexities of the modern world. And, and Charles came in and he, he started changing them in, in a very negative way, very quickly. And it, I think it amplified the fact that I didn't like him.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And it's, it's weird because there was like the reminders too, like a car would pull up and the way they live felt like it predated vehicles Yeah.
1: Like there was no place in their world for that type of thing.
0: Right. Yeah. So, you know, they'd be like a car pulled up and I'd be like, oh shit. Yeah, there's cars in this, but you would get wrapped up in their day to day life and not even think about, there was no, no sense of any type of modern, um, you know, like they had electricity, but beyond that, I mean, there's no mention of a phone, a radio, um, you know, anything that you would uh, equate to, you know, like when you watch something, it takes place and we'll assume it that this book maybe was taking place in 1962 when it was being written, you know, there's always the family is huddled around the radio or there's kids playing their loud rock and roll music or, or you know what I mean? All those things of the times. And it was easy to forget that this book was set in the sixties. Yeah. Um, it
1: could e- based on easily the blackwood 1800s easily.
0: Right. Yeah. And then they just would have changed car to coach. Right. That would have been the difference. Like, yeah. uh, you know, they, they heard a horse pulling up to the front of their, to the front of their home. So, um, I know this book's 55 years old. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody. So, I mean, we're probably going to have to kind of maybe recap the story a little bit. Uh, so we mentioned, like, very absent from what we've talked about is, is the death of the rest of the family, right? We're like, oh, yeah, their poison is quitted. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. So clearly <laughs> we're going to see some resolution on that um, through the course of the story. I don't think that's a secret to anybody. Um, A lot of what we see in that is through the eyes of Uncle Julian, who's compiling a book about what happened that night. So you get snippets of things, um, descriptions of the rest of the family and stuff, mostly through through his eyes as he's trying to put together this work, which is partially lucid. And then, like, he starts to do things like mistake cousin Charles for his brother. Yeah. You know, I mean, so you could tell he's kind of in and out of reality. But the bulk of the backstory, I think, comes through to us um, through uncle julian, who's who's a pretty interesting character.
1: A, a brilliant stroke of exposition, I think, making him write a book about what happened because you basically create a character that dwells on talking about the thing that the book won't talk about, which opens the door for for like little hints and clues to roll out. so like I mean it's obvious that you know this uncle julian is is for the most part an expositional character, Mm -hmm. but in a way that like, you just can't even hold against the book because it works so well. And um, he also introduces like slivers of doubt of what's going on. And one of the best ones. um, See, I don't know if we could talk about, I know
0: exactly what you're talking about.
1: And yeah, exactly. That's the thing. It's, it's one of those things where you're going along and you're chugging along and you think, you know what's going on. And then this this little nugget is introduced and it makes you basically flip back through the whole book in your mind and think, wait, did I miss something? Is that really what happened? Or, Or, And you're trying to tie the pieces together. So in addition to providing exposition and showing us what happened in the backstory, he introduces enough confusing shit where you're like, oh, no, did I get this all the way wrong? Which compels you to continue reading, which I thought was very, very good.
0: Yeah. Um I don't I, I don't think we're going to do a spoiler talk for this. No, I don't think so, we can, man. Yeah. So Rob and I will probably have to spoil things to one another that he'll have to cleverly edit out. <laughs> um but I mean, I don't like there's not a whole lot else we can really talk about. I mean, the book is well written. The dialogue is great. The, the monologues, you know, whatever, the the internal dialogues, they they're all they're all really good. Um a cast of interesting characters. Um, the, the Blackwood family, so Constance, Mary Cat, and Julian are, are all three tremendous characters. Charles is exactly, you know, what you want him to be, the heel, right? Like I said, there's nobody who's looking at Charles going, well, I get it. No, like, like he's just designed to be, um, you know, the black hat of, uh, of this story. Yeah. And then you've got a, a little bit of a stream of, of locals, too, that, that get involved in, in, in ways kind of throughout the story. And really, it's a, it covers a, a little chunk of the Blackwood women's lives, um, while filling in this this kind of great backstory. So, yeah,
1: um, I guess one of the things that I thought was great about the way that the book plays out is that you're, at least I was, and I'm assuming Livius, you'll probably feel similarly. Is very charmed by Maricat and Constance at the begin at the beginning of the book. I just liked their symbol family happy coexistence thing that they had going on with Jonas, the cat taking care of uncle Julian. They had this nice Mm -hmm. method. Like every Tuesday they did this and every Thursday they did this. And it was just a happy home life. And it was very charmed by that. But then like, I'm sure over the decades as this book has been, you know, read and and stuff like that, it's probably been studied and discussed in college courses and stuff like that. Because like the character of Constance is very conspicuously like, built in a way where her kind of adherence to her, like her structure of what a day looks like is probably hiding the fact that like she's so traumatized by what happened to her family and things like that. So mm-hmm. there's probably, a, there's a lot of depth that you can dig into with the individual characters and the way they act is, is a reaction to this trauma or, you know, their knowledge of what happened or, you know um, whatever it happens to be. There's a lot more, more depth, filling to the character than probably what we're doing justice i guess is what i'm trying to say
0: oh for sure yeah and i mean not just constance i think maricat too i think a lot of the things that she does are uh in some ways related to you know losing her parents and, and her brother in, in such a terrible way yeah. so yeah um yeah i don't that's, that's it man that's it that's all we're gonna talk about <laughs> um
1: we can't do anything else with this story
0: i do want to say and again, I'm going to go and, you know, this, I'm going to keep it spoiler free. Rob's going to understand what I'm talking about. Something really weird happened. I was enjoying this story. I, you know, I was like, oh, this is really kind of a light, you know, whatever, you know? Yeah. All right. This cousin's here mm-hmm. trying to hook up with Constance, get the money. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, blah, blah, And then there's, there's a, there's a turn. I don't even want to say it's not, I don't really feel like it's the climax of the book, but I got like a really like deep, deep emotional feeling about this story. And this is where I'm going to go offline and tell Rob what it was. And then we'll see how well we can discuss this without spoiling it. And I got, you know, through this kind of emotional part. And it really changed my entire outlook on this book. What I thought was like, oh, this is a this is a fun little read. You know, yeah, there's some weird poisoning things that happen. And, you know, they kind of live this this weird life. But you're right. They're charming and they're fun. And then, like, the hammer dropped for me, and this turned into a really deep, deep book. And when you were talking about, you know, their habits and whatever correlating to to the loss of their family, I, I thought, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I didn't really think about it that much. But that portion really affected mm-hmm. me and kind of made me see this depth into the characters um, in relation to to how, um, you know, this tragedy that they had suffered together. So that, that, yeah, I mean, it really turned the whole book around for me.
1: Yeah. um, And I don't think I'm just going to straight up agree with you. Like, I feel like throughout the entire book, um, I had a a little bit of a protective feel for these two characters. Like, I I saw how they felt. Um, They obviously felt outside of society. And that was amplified by the tragedy that happened that's mentioned in, in the synopsis. Um, and so what I wanted was like nothing else to go wrong for them. And the book is obviously stacked against that, you know, that inevitability. So, um, yeah, I, I felt the same way. There was a, a big emotional thing for me of, I just want them to live that life that they're enjoying. And, and so obviously when adversity, uh, rears its head, um, I kind of doubled down on that feeling. So I think that you and I are kind of on the same page
0: yes 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 all right um enough is enough we've editing out weird shit that we're saying that's spoilery and stuff so um (laughs) let's just let's just do a wrap-up and and uh and and let's see where this lands on the book scale all right
1: so i'm going to kick this
0: off by saying that this is
1: Shirley jackson is one of those people who is just like legendary in in their field and uh the the story that we read specifically um and definitely high on the list of things that people talk about and so it was one of those things where it's like it just needs to happen if we're going to be you know, the type of podcast that reviews books and we've been going for seven-plus years and we've reviewed over 200 books. We have to get some of this classic stuff just taken care of. And so it was such a relief to give ourselves the opportunity to do that. Um, and, and this is my first real Shirley Jackson reading experience. We, we talked about the TV adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House. Um, which I would still love to read that book, but this is the first time reading anything. Uh, shameful as it is to say, uh, the story's fucking great. I can see how. I mean, this is a this is a person who um, was doing a lot of her writing in the between the '40s and I'm guessing late '50s, early '60s, and I can see how this very easily could have influenced generations of writing afterwards. Um, but the thing that I think is so great about the way the story is told uh is that it is not overtly supernatural in any way, and um I don't wanna use the uh, like a definitive on that because like it could be spoiler spoiler one way or the other because you're supposed to think this is kind of a haunted not necessarily a haunted house but like a horror story of some kind so supernatural elements could exist, but it is just looking at the horror or like the the, the scariness of like mundane life and that always has such a bigger effect on me than if it's like the jump scare ghost crawling weird on the floor kind of stuff you see in movies nowadays and so um uh, just uh, it, it's so well written the characters are just so um lovable and you and you're rooting for them and uh it just kind of like you get knotted up with the way that the 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 story starts to turn and everything so uh it just had a great effect on me and I liked the fact that it was a quick easy read. I sat down and did it in one shot and I enjoyed it all the way through. Absolutely five stars. Who else would say
0: anything different? I might Uh-oh. I might say anything. No, you won't. You won't. Nothing nothing like like challenging me to to do it right after you said it. Um yeah, I uh I expected I don't know. Shirley Jackson's not really a horror author, I guess. I guess I didn't know that. There's a lot of things I don't know. That's one of them. <laughs> um, started reading this book, and like I said, I had to remind myself, maybe this isn't tropey. Maybe, maybe this is where this kind of story originated. Um, it's interesting because the story is really... It's a very gothic story, but it it's like gothic out of time because it takes place in you know, what we'll call the modern era. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but it definitely felt like... Uh, The story takes place in the 17 or 1800s where the cousin comes along and feels that he has some right to the money. Like, you know, this is 2018, man. Some people wouldn't, you know, piss on their cousin and put them out if they're on fire. Right. But, you know, it had that feel that really old timey kind of like the cousin is an important person in in, in the family structure. So at any rate, I digress from what I was going to say. I read the first half to two thirds of this and thought like, oh, these characters are kind of likable. And book is okay, it's enjoyable, it's fun, whatever. And in my mind, if I would have stopped two-thirds of the way in, I probably would have given this three-and-a-half stars. As I mentioned a little earlier, something changed in this book for me. Um, probably a little bit right around the two-thirds mark. And not necessarily, yeah, so there's a catalyst in the story or whatever, but that's not even what I mean. There was a definite like paradigm shift in how I felt about these characters, Um although they continued to be themselves. I think I just got a glimpse of something different about them that really turned this book around for me from something that was like, Oh, this is like a, an okay story, you know, and these people are likable and I, I like Constance and, and uncle Julian's pretty cool to feeling like a really, really deep, deep attachment to them and what happens to them, um, which really turned it around. I mean, like night and day turned it around, uh, for me, um, the story, like I said, is um, predictable in ways. Um, Rob and I, kind of off air here, and a little bit of clever editing that that he will have done, kind of agreed that there were some very predictable elements, and that we saw some things coming. Um, but I couldn't see my change in how I felt about these two young women. Um, I couldn't have seen that coming, and that really caught me off guard and really turned this book around for me. And, and yeah, all right, Rob's right. So it went from three-and-a-half stars to two-thirds of the way into five stars um, at the end. Uh, I don't know. I mean, Rob and I kind of agreed a little bit on this. I'm, I'm actually going to look into if there's other people that, you know, maybe this just caught me on the wrong day unawares, or are there a lot of people that kind of feel the same way that this book really, really shines um, in its last third. So, yeah, I'm going to give it five stars and, uh, I will probably be reading more Shirley Jackson, if not for the podcast, just in my, uh, in my off time. There you go. Shirley,
1: what up? I do want to point out that, uh, I read a little bit about Shirley Jackson, um, in preparation for this episode and, um, she spent a lot of time living in Southern Vermont. Were you aware of this?
0: Um, yeah, so, (laughs) I um, started reading the introduction to it,
1: yeah, by Jonathan Latham.:
0: Yeah, and then I stopped because I felt like it was getting spoiler because he started talking about the characters in the book. Yeah. but yeah, he had said that he, that everyone's pretty sure what town she's actually referring to.
1: Yeah, so it's yeah. Bennington, yep. Vermont, which uh, I was in the very I was in the extreme southeast uh, area of Vermont in a town called Brattleboro. Uh, If you take Highway 9, which is like the east-west kind of main highway of the southern part of Vermont, all the way to the extreme west side. So I was right at the Vermont-New Hampshire border. Uh, Bennington is essentially at the Vermont-New York state border, um, right along at Route 9. So I would basically drive through uh, Bennington-Vermont every time I would leave uh, uh, Vermont to go back to Chicago or come back from Chicago to Vermont it was going through mm. the town that it is heavily implied in the introduction that this book took place in so that's I mean I've been through there dozens of times and, and I really wish that I, have, I knew that I didn't read the introduction until after I read the book like I probably would have had a different picture in my head of, of, of like the, the geography of, of the town that she was describing had I read the introduction when I should
0: have a couple things to say about that um first people in that town are assholes so hopefully you didn't have to spend a lot of time like out of your car there second i love how you talk about the extreme sides of vermont (laughs) because vermont is the 45th largest state which really makes it like the fifth smallest state (laughs) so the way you made it sound like all the way across vermont you know, it's just, it's, it struck me as odd. I that's mean, all. no,
1: yeah. I mean, like <laughs> driving from Brattleboro uh, to Bennington is probably like driving from my apartment to like the loop in Chicago. Yeah. Um, but like I literally was on the border of Vermont and New Hampshire. So that's why I would use the word extreme.
0: Sure. And no, no. Bennington, I understood. Yeah, it's just, yeah. it was funny to hear it about a state that, that, that's, <laughs> that's that, that small. small. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. And probably one of the whitest states in the entire country, too.
0: Per, is it really
1: um, per capita i think it's like 97 percent caucasian
0: oh that's weird um, yeah, yeah vermont i mean is uh from left to right is not very sizable it's taller rather than yeah. than wide. yeah whatever yeah so yeah. um
1: lots of french a lot of the french in the historically hmm. it was a french yeah. territory at one point
0: i guess they don't know shit about vermont yeah. so that's really what that comes down to there you go We also read the lottery. Now here's where this might go a little differently than people expect. Um, Like all the hype, all the hype around that story. And I think a lot of it was spoiled for me um, because of knowing that the hype is based around kind of like a twist ending. Right? Like, I mean, You'd heard about the story of the lottery before, right? Yeah,
1: it's, yeah, it's, it's legend. I would say legendary. right? Sure.
0: And it was, I think it was banned and there are places where you couldn't publish. I don't know. Yeah.
1: It drew a lot of, uh, um, criticism.
0: And I, I get that we're desensitized cause it's 2018 and maybe I didn't know for a fact that that's what the story was going to be, but you could tell in the first like page that the story was going to end the way it was going to end. At least I could. And I just didn't find it that impressive.
1: I'm going to attribute this to, uh, so uh, that that I'm going to specifically attribute to uh, over the years because it was published in 1949, right?
0: I, I believe so.
1: So that's what, 70, almost 70 years ago? Mm-hmm. I, I am attributing that entirely to the fact that over the decades other horror writers were inspired to write something similar or used to similar techniques and stuff like that. Like it got aped, I think is what is what drew some of the surprise out of it for you.
0: No. And I'm, I'm sure. And again, I kind of went back to the same thing and said, look, this thing was a big deal. This had to be the first of its kind. And I still couldn't like, I still couldn't care enough about the story. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I, I don't yeah. know. It was, it was a weird thing. Cause I was like, all right, I finished, uh, you know, we've always lived in the castle, going to read the lottery. It's really excited about it. Like eight minutes later, I was like, huh. So that's what the big deal is about. Like, that's really how I kind of.
1: Yeah. And I think hype probably has a lot to do with it, too, because if mm-hmm. someone even kind of sets up this story for you at all, you know where it's headed. It's, it's, it's oh, sure. Yeah. So like you have to go into it, not even understanding what like genre it may land in in order for the churn at the end to have the impact that it it is supposed to. Um, So, yeah, it's one of those, like, once you know it, you know it kind of. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, I can't give that, you know, a a real shining review. I'm not going to star it or anything, but uh, it's a little surprise. But, again, that did not turn me off to reading more Shirley Jackson, for sure. (laughs)
1: Thomas (laughs) Joyce is going to be so, like, uh destroyed because when we when he discovered that we were going to be reading um oh, uh, this book he I think he either messaged or he tagged us on Facebook did you notice that? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah um, I did. Yeah, he gave just, us a link to the lottery
1: to read the lottery. So mm-hmm. he was really excited for us to read it. So hearing you basically say meh it's probably just going to he's going <sighs> to jump off that like dog suicide bridge now or something. <laughs> I hope I don't he doesn't. Think
0: you're al- I don't think you're allowed to unless you take a dog <laughs> <Sure>. with you. <laughs>
1: He can yeah he he's going to stage it like the dog committed suicide. Yep. And he was trying to save it.
0: Yeah. I so, hope none of
1: that happens. Thomas Joyce is awesome.
0: So how did you feel about the lottery? Um I I think that <laughs> so you're speaking directly to Thomas Joyce standing on a bridge right now.
1: Just be careful what you say. Um I think similar to you, I understood the mechanics of the story enough to see where it was going. Um and, and Uh, so nothing was a surprise I knew what was going to happen I knew what the lottery was for Um, so really what I was doing was stepping back and watching like how well was the story written and what were like the little things that made it you know better than an average story and so for me it wasn't as much like a an enjoyment of a fiction story as it was like stepping back and looking at someone's craft and so i appreciate it from like the, the the craft aspect especially considering when it was written um and, and and yeah it wasn't super um compelling for i wasn't lost in the story right so, so apologies <laughs> really jackson lovers um i couldn't get into it as much as i wanted to but i do appreciate what it was going for
0: yeah There's Shirley Jackson. Um, I don't really find it likely that we're going to review more Shirley Jackson on this podcast. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just because not because she's not awesome.
0: No, not at all.
1: It's just the way that we the the structure we've built ourselves into. Um, Shirley Jackson is on the other side of our Blackwood Estates fence.
0: Very nice. Um, This is the oldest book that we've reviewed. Now no, it is yeah it is no
1: oh no because slaughterhouse no. five was no i'm not i'm sorry uh uh, uh sirens of titan yep. was in the 50s yeah so this is yeah no as...
0: and and the nancy drew and the hardy boys oh, that's were, right yeah 1920s yeah um i'm okay with doing some older stuff i think that 2019 will see us do something from the 1800s <laughs> i i really feel that we're gonna go like super duper like old school classic um at some point
1: you're going to get me to read like fucking Ulysses or something.
0: Oh god no. Alexandre Dumas?
1: Oh my god, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like three yeah, musketeers or fun. something?
0: That would be fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's going to be Holy on shit. on tap for for 2019.
1: That would be great. It's um, got me very excited.
0: Yeah. So other news, we'll move on from from old books and we'll move into um let's do some good news, bad news. Um Adam, whose legs don't work in Oshkosh, did a TEDx talk. You did. How fucking daunting must that be?
1: Yeah, so him and I have been texting back and forth over the last few days because he just did his talk uh, the day before yesterday, maybe two days ago. Uh, from yeah, Harvard Saturday, recording. I think. Yeah, yeah so today is Monday. He did it on Saturday. Um, and so uh, here's the thing about Adam. He's the kind of guy where uh, I know if he decides to do something, he's going to do it well. So I wasn't worried for him. But, I mean, he stood up in front of thousands of people and told very revealing... Hey, per- hold
0: on, hold on a second. Hundreds? I don't Did know. he really stand up in front of oh. <laughs> people?
1: No, actually, there's a picture of him in his wheelchair in front of hundreds or... All right. Well, let's get our facts straight. Yeah, sorry. Um, And told very revealing personal stories about his life and and, and was vulnerable about some of the most... Uh, you know, scary parts of of growing up. And so uh, he was nice enough to share with me via email um, a recording of his, his kind of prep. Like he had done some prep runs, some test runs, and he recorded himself, I'm assuming, to kind of critique himself and things like that. And he sent me one of his recordings of that. So I got to listen to what was probably like I think he said 65, 70 percent accurate to what his onstage uh, final product was. Nice. And uh, it's funny, like I've known this man for 32 years and uh, I've never seen him do something like this. And so it's like this person that you've always had this like long time, you think you know everything about them and then you see them do something totally new. And it's just it's interesting to see someone in a different light like that. Uh, I have confidence that he pretty much knocked it out of the park based on his, his trial run that he shared. And uh, from what I understand, I think sometime in January, it'll be available for public consumption. And so at oh, that nice. time, I'm sure either we're going to try to at least share out links and stuff like that, or maybe even like demo a piece of it on the podcast.
0: Very cool. Well, congratulations, Adam. That is uh, it's a pretty big feat, man. I don't know if either one of us would be up to that.
1: Well, you and I always have, we have each other to bounce off of. It's true. So like if I'm in a panic moment, I just <laughs> say something to you, you take over. Mm-hmm. I collect yep. myself. Yeah,
0: that's uh,
1: true. Being up there on your own uh, with all these people who, and, and, and its it's got some prestige to it. So the TEDx, the X at the end basically means that it was like a independently organized event as opposed to like a Tony Robbins is up there talking kind of TED talk mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, which, by the way, if you haven't seen the Tony Robbins TED Talk, it's fucking amazing, um, and that's not sarcasm at all. Uh, like, is
0: this a recent one or?
1: Uh, it's long. It, I, I'm sure it was like ten, fifteen years ago.
0: Oh, okay, gotcha. Um,
1: but yeah, like it's got some prestige to it, so it th- hmm. had to be intimidating, and um, I know he was terrified and 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 stuff like that. But um, just super proud of the
0: dude. Well, I look forward to hearing it sometime in January for sure.
1: Yeah. Didn't mention me at all, which I was a little like I mean, come on.
0: That's yeah, I mean <laughs> you would want to name drop Adam when you do these kind yeah, of things. Come on. You I, always I interviewed, watch the the big the big time people did it do it all the time. I so. fucking
1: interviewed David Duchovny. What more does I mean, come on.
0: Right? So
1: Anyway.
0: Um in much sadder news. Um Stan Lee died today. Age ninety five. Yeah, um, I'm sure everybody knows who he is because um, he was in Mallrats.
1: Yeah, he's that guy from Mallrats. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's how I always refer yeah. to him—the guy from Mallrats. Um, I was
1: wondering how big of an impact this would have on you, per- particularly because I don't think you're much of
0: a comic book dude, right? Um, you know, no, I, I'm not. But, um, as a kid i mean i grew up on spider-man and iron man and and i mean a variety of of other characters that he wasn't involved with so i understand the impact that he had and and you know i was saddened. but i mean let's face it, the guy's 95 years old like it's hard to be like heartbroken you know this isn't uh yeah. you know losing shirley jackson at 49 or, or whatever you figured out it was yeah. you, you know what i mean like he's been on his way for a while now um that being said what occurred to me is the, the landscape of television um, and movies today likely wouldn't be anywhere near the same without his influence. So you talk about the biggest movies at the theater every year, the Avengers or some formulation of the Avengers. Right. Half of what I watch on TV is some type of comic book um the tv show you know what i mean with with superheroes yeah. and stuff and i don't know even though he's not responsible for creating um all of the ones that that are super popular or, or whatever it really comes down to is where where would we be would would comic book superheroes even be a thing if it wasn't for his early influence um and and the, the characters that he brought to life so i mean i i i Totally respect that the world has lost a great creator and someone that was super influential in, in at least pop culture, if nothing else. And let's face it, what are the first things a lot of kids read? Comic books, right? So, you know, some of that is beach. I read comic books when I was a little kid too. I don't know if they were Stan Lee comic books, but some of the earliest stuff I read were comic books. Would I be reading novels without those? I don't I don't know. I can't say. So
1: Yeah. That's the thing. Like the guy the guy's impact on, on um, entertainment, because uh, you have to say entertainment because it wasn't just one medium. He bled through to so many different mediums. Like, his impact on entertainment is probably, at this point, immeasurable. Um, but to your point, I always feel this way when I fucking knew it. Stanley dead at 95. I knew everybody was going to be wailing on social media about it. And I was like, mm-hmm. motherfucker was 95. Yeah. Like this was his time and you can be sad about it, but like, it's not a tragedy. You can't label it as a tragedy because like, I mean, that's the fucking reality of life. Um, He, uh, and I believe I could be wrong, but I believe up until like his last moments was still going to cons and stuff like that. And it was probably in a much more limited capacity than when he was younger. Mm -hmm but the dude was out living he was out living his life enjoying doing what he like loved up until the last minute and so like appreciate what he what he did and his contribution and just know that like homeboy like he lived many more lives than than a lot of us will be fortunate enough to live
0: for sure and i don't want anyone to take any of this the wrong way but, <laughs> you know it's you said it and i couldn't help but laugh recently there were like like weird allegations of him like groping yeah. his nurses and stuff, yeah. and the funny thing was, I saw several people come out and they're like, "The motherfucker's like ninety five <laughs> years old, like get the fuck out of here with this. He's a sexual predator bullshit, you know?" Because it yeah. was it was turning into Me Too moments.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, everyone was like, he's the guy's fucking 90 years old and he grabs your ass. Like, th- that's not, that's no longer sexual assault. That's just, you know, I mean, that type of, of, of yeah. thing. So, yeah. When you said that, you know, he lived his life all the way to the end loving, you know, doing what he loved doing, <laughs> that's the first thing that came to mind. Grabbing asses. That's what I that was, was talking much. about. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. So, but like,
1: I mean, to contrast that, I was on his, w- his Wikipedia and he was married to the same woman until she died in 2017 from like 19. 19- 47 or something like that. Holy so shit. like uh either he was like a loving, dedicated husband who was mischaracterized, or he was a horn dog the whole way through. And either way, like let the 95 year old guy grab your ass.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm in full agreement with that. Unless it's my ass, then it's just kind of weird. That being said, let's not <laughs> forget that one of the reasons we know who Stanley is is because he was a marketing genius and made cameo appearances in everything for the last forty years that had his name on it. Yeah, um, I am not sure how much we would know for me. Stanley, it's mall rats. well, yeah, but but you get what I'm saying. Like, yeah. Would we? Rec- would he be a recognizable face? I, I don't think so. If he didn't appear in the Spider-Man movies and in and Mallrats and you know what I mean and in all these yeah. different TV shows and stuff that he was tied to. So, at any rate. Clearly, the world has lost uh, one of its great creators um, and, uh, you know, hope his legacy will live on. I mean, well, comic books themselves, I don't know how big they are, but I can tell you that that medium or the comic book or the superhero medium has never been bigger and probably will continue to grow. The biggest baller
1: fucking move this guy could pull is to, like, go legit comic route and actually just be like, yeah, he died, but he wasn't like he didn't really die and like suddenly Stanley's back like 3 years from
0: now. <laughs> Jesus at 98. Like they just
1: rewrite his stories. He's like still 98, but he's he's alive again. Yeah. That would be some baller shit. He'd be like it wasn't it was it was real all, all, all along guys.
0: Mhm. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> all right, let's hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> That'd be really creepy. That would be, be terrible. Yeah, super creepy. All right, back to us, man. So, how many books have we read this year now? So this is our 30th
1: Book and and it's a little it's it's tricky because we've reviewed twenty eight books, uh, but we've read thirty because when we interviewed David Duchovny, we read two more of his books than we reviewed. I'm counting that shit.
0: Yeah, for sure you should. We talked about him on the podcast and and we read them. So yeah. nine thousand three hundred fifty two pages, Rob. It is the middle of November. We have to get seven hundred fifty oh. pages in.
1: It's gonna happen. It's gonna all happen. right.
0: All right. Well, we uh, do have a book for next week, albeit it's a short book. Um, we are going to be reviewing something, but first, did you want to mention, cause there's a note here. I don't know if you want to address this.
1: <sighs> well, and, and this is the thing, like I knew about this a week ago, probably. Cause that's when I put up the, uh, the, the previous episode. Um, uh, you know, I edited it and then I had to number it and post it and everything like that. So like when the Alice isn't dead episode was edited and posted i was like oh this is episode 419 our next episode is 420 stoners are gonna uh care about care about that and i won't and so uh this is just a note you probably already notice if you're listening to this that you are listening to you. episode 420
0: how did we not get a stoner book for episode 420
1: what name a stoner
0: book <laughs> I don't know, man. Something um, fear and loathing in Las Vegas.
1: All right, that is very drug heavy. I, I will give you that.
0: Did I you... read it. It's
1: not a good book. It's a. Eh. I was about to challenge you on that. I'm going to say it's not on this. a.
0: It's not a great book. Let me put it I mean, that
1: way. I do have Hunter S. Thompson's initials tattooed on me, so I probably feel a little stronger. Oh, then you uh, probably
0: know the book I liked better. What was the one where he was like living in? Like we liked cookin- the Rum Diary because it was an yes. actual
1: story. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I like the Rum Diary. Yep. So, anyway,
1: um, here's a here's a legit question. When um when did the number 420 hit your radar?
0: Oh I God, remember. I don't. No, I mean it's got to be 20 years, but I don't remember like what the reason was or how that.
1: So I'm gonna give it for me. It was probably 1997 ish, 97, 98. Um, I was dating this girl uh, who we affectionately called Psycho Kelly.
0: Affectionately.
1: Because there was a lot of Kellys who were hanging out at the time. And actually, the funny thing is there was another one who we also referred to as Psycho. But then, since there was already a Psycho Kelly, the other one was Psycho and her last name. Um, so that didn't really even make <laughs> You guys
0: are a creative, creative bunch.
1: Not that good at naming people. Yeah. <laughs> um, Psycho Kelly, I'm hanging out with her at her house one day and um, she thought it was really funny that she had like broken or stopped the clock on like the stove in her kitchen. So it was stopped at 420 and I was like, what does that mean? And she explained it to me and I was like, oh, I don't care, but I, I don't know why, but that's stuck in my head. It's like, so for like 20 years now, that number, I've known the significance and not cared about it for that long because I've never been like a pothead or anything like that.
0: So, it's odd, because I said about 20 years ago, which would put it right around the same time. Yeah. Um, I think I have some information here. So, it starts with the dead. Now, which dead would you think that might refer (laughs) to? Right. So, it was Christmas week in Oakland, 1990. Steve Bloom was wandering through the lot, that timeless gathering of hippies that springs up in the parking lot before every Grateful Dead concert, when a deadhead handed him a yellow flyer. We're going to meet... At 4:20 on 4:20 for 4:20ing in Marin County at the Bolonus Ridge sunset spot on Mount Temel Tamilpus? Temelpas I don't know what the fuck is that. <coughs> Any rate, that's apparently the the first instance of 4:20 for pot smoking. So, all right. So it took about a
1: decade to filter onto my radar. Yeah. That's not that's not bad, I guess.
0: Well, I mean, you know, people who smoke pot, in my experience, aren't always the fastest moving people. So if it took eight years to to <laughs> spread, it's pretty quick. It's yeah, yeah, in it's st- probably they did yeah. that right. So at any rate, little fun stuff there.
1: I really just wanted to mention Psycho <sighs> Kelly. That was what the whole thing was about. <sighs>
0: I like how you mentioned Psycho Kelly, but you didn't want to mention Psycho, the other one with the last name. Like, well, that would have been too close to home.
1: If I said the, if I said their last name, you'd know their first and last name. I was trying to prefer, preserve their... Oh,
0: that's a good point. Right, because yeah. if her name's Kelly... Yeah, Anonymity. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, 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 I got gotcha. you. Okay. <laughs> um, sorry, um, any listeners named Kelly, if it sounds like Rob <laughs> thinks you're all crazy, but, you know, maybe you are.
1: Oh, my God. There was just like... Oh, all right, so I'm going to go into the Psycho Kelly thing a little bit deeper she didn't know that she was called that within our group of friends. Like that was a psycho. Kelly doesn't know she's psycho Kelly. Ah, right. Um, and then like, we're hanging out with this like kind of occasional friend. And uh, I don't know. It, we are like at subway or it's just a fucking dumb, like teenager <laughs> shit. And um, at like, we're hanging out at subway and something came up. Somehow the conversation turned around to psycho or something. And this occasional friend is like, Oh, is that why they call you psycho Kelly? And I had to just fucking deal with it in the moment, like that she's discovering she's called Psycho oh, Kelly. Yeah. It was a little awkward. But uh you're at Subway, so you know. She likes the stoner stuff. She's at Subway. She got through
0: it. She was fine. <laughs> she just smoked more pot. Smoked a little and-
1: weed, and- ate <sighs> a sandwich, she was good.
0: Next week we're <laughs> gonna be reviewing In the House, in the dark of the woods. By Laird Hunt.
1: Whoa, it's not a Matt Bell book?
0: It is not a Matt Bell book. Oh, what, what was that called? What was that book called? A House I... in the End of the Lake in the lake. I don't know. Um, this was sent to us for review. We're a little late on it, uh, mostly because the book dropped while I was out of the country. Um, and then we had some other things to do. At any rate. We're going to be doing that book next week. So that is a... Uh, eerie, disturbing story of one of our perennial fascinations, witchcraft in colonial America wrapped up in a lyrical novel of psychological suspense. So that's, what's coming up next. More stories from Rob's teenage years, I'm sure. And uh, who, knows, who knows what else will pop up by next week.
1: I love it. All right. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. Join us very soon for some more until then I'm Rob Olson.
0: And I'm Livia Ned and keep reading.